0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom Keeper podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Judson Davis, who is coming to us from California, the founder and director of the East-West Institute for Interdisciplinary Studies, a university educator, author, counselor, and filmmaker, and of course, near and dear to my heart, a world traveler. He holds a PhD in East-West psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies, where I also got my doctorate. And he is also has a master's degree from in counseling psychology with emphasis in depth psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute, also in the Bay Area. And for those that don't recognize it, it's very, very into the archetypal studies and into Jung. And so his most recent work, which we will discuss today, Alchemy and Transformation, East, West, East and West, a cross-cultural analysis of Jung psych, Jungian psychology and Tibetan Tantra is striking a very close chord to my heart, and uh, that that work is currently under review for publication. I had a chance and an auspicious synchronicity to come across Judson's work. Uh, as a backstory for your benefit, Judson, and to listeners, I have, of course, been uh, hard at work at my own new book, Return with the Elixir, combining the threads of Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, and Tibetan Tantra, sometimes called Tibetan Alchemy. And I was, I'm always very, very keen to find someone more steeped in the material than I and has, has sort of just found your work on a whim in a short and closing window before my departure for Bali and your return from Thailand. And so we're meeting as each of us are emerging from each of our respective or entering into each of our respective bardos. And I love that kind of timing. And I just feel they are a kindred spirit on paper and I look forward to this sort of conversation because I know we'll meander a- across a number of different uh, subject matters and pot- potentially experiences that uh, both of us have reveled in and have opened us up and uh, sort of turned us inward and outward, uh, not the least of which is your world, uh, world, world study and world, uh, your experience traveling the world to sacred sites. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to just um, turn it over to you first and foremost with a quote that I often uh, throw at the outset to, uh, to the up those that are up at bat, just for your little reading, if you don't mind, your interpretation, which is sort of emblematic of the show, the uh, Wisdom Keeper podcast. And the quote is this, Judson, sometimes we have to go back in order to go forward. Your thoughts on that?
1: Very interesting um, and forthright comment, and I think relevant to what I've just emerged from. I was confined in Thailand during the the pandemic, uh, not able to leave because I wasn't fully vaccinated. And during that time, a two-year period, I really um, struggled to find deeper meaning in my life. I was not enamored with, either Thai culture or many of the foreigners that I met. Um, All of that is fine and and good in its own way, but it didn't resonate deeply with me. And I found at some point that I needed to really go inward and to begin to explore again some of the areas that sometimes uh, drift um, out of our lives temporarily. And this brought me back to um, the focus on the website that I uh, put together uh in the last year and a half um the content that's on the website also um a deep exploration of the work of christopher Beish, um and we can explore that in a little more detail later if you wish but um in addition to Beish's work which is in many ways a an integration of Uh, Jungian psychology and Tibetan Tantra in certain aspects of what he reveals through 20 years of remarkable LSD psychotherapy. And this Mm -hmm. is following Groff's revolutionary work Stanislav Groff. Um, In addition to that, I began to explore near-death experience and the remarkable uh, collection of revelations that are coming forward now through YouTube because people now have this vehicle through which to share these unfathomable and remarkable experiences and in many ways this ties into Jung's work with the collective unconscious, the archetypes, um, the archetype of the self, the, the psychic totality, and also the universal mind of Buddhism and um Having contact with disembodied spirits, with dead relatives, with um, dimensions that we do not normally access in our, our waking, our normal waking states. that all of this helped me to uh, regenerate a sense of, of meaning and direction in my life at a time that was otherwise um, for a while quite stagnant and and rather, Uh, unsatisfying so to answer your question uh, in short form there was a blessing in that contraction Mm. because it forced me to expand in my own uh inner world and in the inner worlds of the people whose experiences i have been deeply touched by and that is what i would respond to relative to your first question
0: yeah wonderful and i you know just i i feel like the the pandemic as an archetype in itself i think many of us particularly people listening to the show would have similarly felt the contraction and the space sort of serving as a you know equal parts potential cavern or or prison and and retreat center so i think we're 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 remarkably blessed to have at some point come across great lineages and great study matter great resources to actually make sense and make use of this kind of you know dark night of the soul and so it's you know but it makes it no less easy i mean being resourced and well intended and having available or access to a lineage so that you can go inward i mean since we're on the topic and you raised it you know do you want to give us a little flavor of the challenge of being there in your mind and confined and in a way, I mean, that's my interpretation, a little bit abandoned by your country. So you sort of un, 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 unable to return for two years, like you can't go home. I'm, I'm reading a lot of metaphor in there. And I just wonder, you know, subjectively what that was like for you.
1: Well, you've outlined it quite well. Essentially, I felt uh, confined and with few options. And there were periods of lockdown, periods in which for example, we had to be in by 9 p.m. Um, any social interaction was greatly curtailed. Um, I had met some people, and I had, you know, a, a social a circle of social friends. But um, people go to Thailand for different reasons, and there's an old saying: it's a great place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Um, <laughs> there, it, it, there, there are some lovely people and a rich cultural tradition in its own right. But where I was living, there was very little in the way of temples. It was quite modern, overrun with motorbikes, very little nature, Um, even though I was in a beach town. um, It just wasn't um, inspiring or invigorating. I feel deeply connected to trees and to nature. And this was largely lacking, number one. Number two, there weren't too many people, actually any people that I met there, foreign or, or local, who could engage in the kind of conversation we're having today. And so in many ways, I felt alienated from two of the things that are most important to me. And that combined with being restricted and unable to leave until I finally, this earlier this year, received full vaccination status, felt like I was, in a sense, imprisoned. So that's what then led me into this exploration of what I described earlier. So there was a uh, very much a silver lining to the experience. But getting through that dark night that you referenced earlier and having um, a a kind of awakening of sorts to the material that I described earlier. was really what saved me because I was deeply unhappy for the first six or eight months that I was there. And I was waiting, of course, and waiting and and hoping that things would change. And That, that
0: must, that must have really been very hard because I mean, you know, knowing that you're going to be confined for a year and then is something quite different than, waking up every day wondering is this going to be the day that something's going to change and have that stretch on for two years
1: that's absolutely that's all
0: that's almost a definition of torture
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it is a kind of torture i mean um they often say that it's easier to know a an unhappy or or unpleasant truth than to live in uncertainty and that too is is you know, something that I think is is deeply valuable because our lives are uncertain and to become more comfortable with that is important. But this was um, uncertainty in the sense of entrapment, how long I would be confined, and also a great limitation of my professional options in many ways. Um, And again, because the rollout was so slow and and Thailand and other uh, third world countries uh, don't have the resources that we have in the West. um, They were initially providing Chinese vaccines that weren't recognized by Western Europe or, or America and then later finally began to develop AstraZeneca, but that was, you know, well into the second year. And so um, there was some light at the end of the tunnel when we began to get vaccinated in September of last year. But again, I had to get the second AstraZeneca following the initial Sinovac vaccine to finally be eligible to enter either Europe or my own country, the United States. And that's quite a strange experience to want to go home And for your government to say, no, we're not allowing even our own citizens back until they are, you know, meeting this requirement was a a strange experience also.
0: Well, strange is being too kind. I wonder, you know, I I put myself in your position. I would definitely feel betrayed because it's not like uh, it was out, out of choice or you did anything wrong to be so egregiously treated. You don't expect that from the United States. So. I mean, listen, I want to ask you, you know, we'll, we'll have to, we'll all have, you know, the quote was to go back in order to go forward. So we. I'd like to go back into your own biography, uh, but before I do, just to close the loop on this particular part of it, uh, did, you, did you eventually turn a corner and start writing or make use of it as a research period? And I mean, did you craft, did you come out with an elixir? In other words, did you come out with something?
1: Well, in a sense, that's what saved me is that I, as I mentioned earlier, I began to explore the experience uh, these remarkable experiences with so many universal characteristics of people who had had near death experience and also people who had. journeyed into these other dimensions through various means, including Christopher base and, of course, uh, uh pioneering work and this returned me to. um things that have never left me, but I think um, were harder to focus on when I was otherwise unhappy. And um, it was finally through that discontent that I decided in order to, to survive in this period of forced confinement, I've got to go within and begin to explore and to to expand upon my deeper interests. So, Uh, I was able to greatly expand my my website during that time, add a lot of material, I did some writing, um, and quite a bit of additional research. And so it it was beneficial in that sense, in a way it kicked me in the butt and got me moving. And sometimes adversity has that effect. Um, It took a while, but I got there. And uh, looking back at it now, I think probably again it was a kind of dark night of the soul um, from which i eventually emerged through a conscious choice to do something more deeply penetrating more deeply meaningful and much of that now is reflected in in uh, my present work and, and in my website so
0: yeah so this is good maybe we'll maybe we'll use your personal experience as a architecture to to reflect on Jung and and some of the themes because it's it's so relevant and it's so accessible. Um, but one of the things is, I mean, you're talking about the Dark Knight, so maybe we can use that as a jumping off point. Can you give us a little bit of your bio and and your maybe maybe a few beads in the mala of your childhood or your upbringing that maybe would be relevant in, the, in in serving as a backstory to get you to the place where we, we are right now, which is dredging up the dark night. I can only imagine in the months in lockdown that certain things were coming up. And maybe those things you could talk a little bit about. Maybe there were childhood things. Maybe there were young man's angst that was in there, uh, places of of conflict that you had brushed away or put under the carpet, and, and maybe you can give us a little sense of who you are, so that we can, you know, that that in a way will be embodying the quote, going back in order to go forward.
1: I think that's a great question, and, and I can tell you that um, Jung's notion of the shadow, for example, which are which are the disowned uh, negative aspects of ourselves that we project upon other people um and that we have to eventually own in our own right in order to um individuate or to grow and develop as a human being psychologically and spiritually this was coming up i was i was having shadow projections i found myself getting angry um at certain people um for things that i later traced back to myself not that that person necessarily had done something that wasn't you know i mean maybe it was a ripoff situation by a local or maybe it was some unsavory behavior <laughs> by a, a fellow uh, traveler. But I came to understand that 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 is in me also, that I am human and that um, the image that we hold of ourselves which Jung would describe as the persona is very often a mask that covers um, these deep layers of, uh, repressed um, personality traits and experiences, and during this time in confinement, much of this was coming up, and I found myself um, having to really um, analyze and and be honest about my reactions to things. And of course, um, in Buddhism, it's all about you know accepting the moment, whatever it may present and being able to be at peace with that um, absent this kind of reactionary psychic response. But certainly that was taking place on occasion. And that was good for me. Um, Again, um, in both Jungian psychology and in Tibetan Buddhism, it's these uh, shadow aspects or repressed um, personality traits or even complexes that eventually we must face in order to move forward. And that's part of what occurred as a result of being in that contracted uh, environment or state. And that has been very healthy. It has awakened me to the importance of continuing the work. It's Mm -hmm. not enough to just read about it, research um these different theories even engage in it in in psychotherapy for a while whatever the case may be it's an ongoing process that never ends it's a lifelong process of personal growth and development and i think we sometimes get very busy in our personal lives or even in difficult circumstances and we lose sight of that and so that was an important element for me again recognizing certain shadow aspects emerging through different experiences and understanding that as uh, as representations of my persona that I needed to remove the mask from and, and be honest with myself about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an important part of the process.
0: Judson, can you give us a little taste of, of how you got into Tibetan Buddhism and Jung, and they may be, it might've happened at the same time, it might've not, but how did you get to Jung and how did you get to Tibetan Buddhism? What, give us a little (laughs) taste of the journey that led up to those milestones.
1: It has been a very interesting uh, trajectory. Um, I was first introduced to Jung by my stepfather, who uh, was Japanese, a well-known artist. He had had been born in Japan and, and immigrated to the States. Long story for another time, but, He was very into Jung's work and a number of other um, psychological and spiritual traditions, including Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. And he presented Mm. me with a hard copy of Jung's final work, Man and His Symbols, um, when I was a teenager. And at the time, I don't think I was mature enough to really grasp the, the depth of what the book contains, but I was fascinated by the symbols and the visuals. I knew there was something there. And I'm going to put that to the side for a moment and fast forward to um, the age of 30 when I did around the world um, walkabout or pilgrimage for six months, starting in California and then going east and eventually passing through um, Nepal, India, Europe, and back to the States. Um, I had a tremendous experience in Nepal uh, during a three-week trek and i I have to
0: interrupt i have to i'm so sorry i love pilgrimage so i'm just gonna just ask you to go back a couple paces there what's the impetus to go on a one-year walkabout? because i think these moments are what you know joseph Campbell might call the call to adventure and the departure can you give us a you're you're in your 30s maybe something's going on 28 29 I mean, it's not every day that someone says, "I'm going to go walk about the entire planet and and particularly hit places like Nepal." So before you indulge me in 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 my own memories of first going to those parts and those regions, what set you off?
1: A great uh, urgency to experience um, something deeper than what. I had found in my native California, as beautiful as Southern California is. And I grew up in a very nice beach town and it was lovely and fun and and wonderful. But I always felt that something deeper was missing, that there was a a focus on the outward aspects of life on living well, living high on the sun culture, uh, being beautiful, being um, impressive in an outward sense and very much the sort of Hollywood mentality and through the exposure to um, art and aesthetics that my stepfather and my mother had brought to um, my siblings and myself, I felt that going to ancient cultures would be an opportunity to explore um, traditions that had a long history and had developed in ways that I was not encountering or, or sensing in, in my native California. So that was the impetus. I really wanted to go to these ancient lands and see what there was there um, in the way of, of uh, spiritual traditions and um, architecture, aesthetics, art, all of these things that at their foundation are an expression of something deeper. So I began with um, a trip to New Zealand for a a friend's wedding. That was the original um, reason for going overseas. And then this other part of me came into play. And the trip just ended up being a a six month around the world um, adventure. So anyway, where things really got interesting after New Zealand, I went to uh, Malaysia and Thailand. And then I flew to Kathmandu, Nepal, and that's where things got very, very interesting. At that time, this is about, this is many, what, two, three decades, this is actually 30 years ago, three decades ago. Um, Kathmandu was a very different place. It was authentic in a way that has disappeared, and it was much less crowded, especially with cars and and all of the urban uh, confusion that is there now. The ancient temples the the Indian sadhus who were on the streets of Kathmandu in the old town and were there themselves on pilgrimage temples like Swayambhunath, which is a Tibetan Buddhist uh, pilgrimage site and where many Tibetan Buddhists live having fled Tibet Um, this was all incredibly magical but what occurred on the trek that followed was another dark night of the soul when I had a kind of um, experience with another of my fellow trekkers that caused me to really question uh, who I was as a human being. And what what I think occurred there was that again, the mask was stripped away. And in the process of this three-week trek, which took us through the Solo-Kumbu region, where the Sherpa people live, and this is the Everest Base Camp region, contact with these beautiful, uh, simple, humble, but unbelievably welcoming and generous people and visiting these ancient uh, temples that are, in some cases, a week's walk from the closest Roadhead town. So you drive up to a certain point and the road goes no further and then you start trekking and you're out in the Himalayan foothills, you know, a week away from from getting back and the only way to get back is is by walking or emergency helicopter but the point being that um, In the presence of this ancient culture and the presence of the immensity of the Himalayas. You become very small, especially if the mask has been pulled away. And in becoming small, you open to all that is. You merge or you can merge with this greater totality, but you must die first to the old self in order to be reborn in this immensity of which you are just a tiny part. You're the drop in the ocean, but you are the ocean at the same time you exist as a separate drop. And this occurred, this um, happened to me in in an experiential sense. And it was probably the most powerful experience of my life at that time. Um, Deeply humbling and and deeply inspirational um, in touching something so much deeper and so much more expansive than one's usual contracted sense of self. Again, Jung's persona. And this, again, happened in correlation in part with exposure to the Tibetan Buddhist culture that the Sherpas um, have inherited from the Tibetans. It brought over the mountains centuries and centuries ago in all of these migrations. Um, and it's a, a, a remarkable place. And I highly recommend, um, this region and this kind of experience for anyone who is looking to leave behind the modern world with all of its trappings and really get back to a kind of primal connection uh, with the earth and with some of the deeper spiritual traditions that we have on this planet.
0: Yeah, do continue. You're you're you've got our attention. So we're in the journey with you. We're right there. <sighs> you 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 hit a you hit a huge marker there. So if I can just recap, you've got this uh, family member. Was it an uncle who gave you the book on Jung?
1: That was my stepfather.
0: Oh, stepfather. I'm sorry. And 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 some 15 years later, you find yourself on a world trek or a walkabout and emerging. You know, having a conscious or mind altering experience in the in the grace of the Himalayas were there other significant events on the, I mean I, I you know people who listen to my podcast know that pilgrimage is right there up there as one of my most beloved you know uh, ways to spend time in a precious human life I think there's nothing quite like being on pilgrimage and I I I've, I've got to just say I resonate completely with you being a young person my first encounter on pilgrimage was 20 years old in uh, in Bodh Gaya on the buddhist studies abroad program Antioch Buddhist studies abroad and would have been 1996 now long time ago but it made such an impression that i think it shaped the entire course and trajectory of my life and then it wasn't you know so i i probably have made nine pilgrimages to bodgaya since including some of the some of my own tours bringing people there because i do i do agree with you i think there's something I mean, I think it's no coincidence at the tipping point that we find ourselves in modernity that more and more people are looking for some deeper sense that you were looking for as the main impetus on your hero's call. They're they're striking the wonderful allures of California, have not satisfied the urges of the spirit. I think more and more as we progress in our industrial age, I mean, more and more people are having that experience and even the export of industrialization across the planet, even even third world country where the the lie is being sold and people have blue jeans and Marlboro cigarettes and and, uh, Ray-Bans sunglasses. They themselves now think that the two bedroom house is gonna bring some satisfaction. The new car, the new Honda car is gonna bring some deeper satisfaction. And we've just exported our illness to all those areas, every nook and cranny on the earth now in this age of industrialization and our secular modernist culture paradigm I think has innately been corrosive worldwide now. So, you know, but there is still these outposts and bastions of the old world. And just like I started at the top of the of the conversation with this quote, sometimes it's dire, important, necessary for us to go back in order to go forward. I think this is an archetype. I mean, I think this is what Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey talks about. I think this is what Jung talked about, but although be it in an internal way, when you go inward, you are reclaiming parts of your psyche. There may be childhood trauma there. There may be, you know, things brushed under the corner into the nooks of crannies of your life that you only come into contact with under force majeure, maybe. <laughs> and uh, and I think in Tibetan Buddhism, it's also there as an archetype too. at least it is in the subtle body work of, of the alchem- alchemical process of mandala or deity work where you have to leave, your ordinary sense perception of who you claim to be in a reified way, who you think you are, in order to occupy the center most region of the mandala, there has to be a dissolution first. You have to come undone. Um, and I think so. I think the world is coming undone in, in the pandemic, the great pandemic of 2020, and its ensuing uh, tsunami waves whether they be the the new wave of the uh, Ukraine war, but all, certainly the economic crisis and the recession that's with about to hit us. This is the tipping point of the industrial age, I think. And more and more people are hungry for something deeper though not everybody exactly knows what they're looking for. And that is again, part of the trip. I mean, you started out thinking that you're gonna hit a friend's wedding in in new zealand and little did you know what you would find as you as some deeper part of your psyche was guiding you i do believe in that i do believe it was sort of predestined for you to i mean just your I mean, I think of myself doing prostrations under the Bodhi tree at 20, and I can't find another explanation other than a past life connection with that place that would have brought me to that. I mean, I could have ended up anywhere. I could have been studying economics in London. I could have been in Florence studying architecture. I could have been anywhere else, but I was in Bodh Gaya, and you were in the Himalayas, and there's some very deep thing that you find there. And I think more and more people are looking for that because I think they're feeling suffocated and I think they're feeling like their soul is calling out in very symptomatic ways. Any comment on that uh, On that sort of description of our situation, our current situation?
1: I think it's very relevant to uh, what's happening in the world. This is, as Jung would say, a collective process. We are not disconnected by any means from our fellow human beings. Not only does the psyche go back you know, uh, to an infinity, a, a time we can't even conceive of in its primal form through hundreds of thousands of centuries. Uh, we inherit aspects of that in, in each of us in our uh, birth into this world. But we also live collectively as a species and with the planet itself. And it may well be that we are on the fringe of a dark night, a collective dark night. This is what Christopher Bache talks about in his um, very profound work. Um, you know, it's
0: not a name I'm familiar with, so please feel free at any time to introduce his work because it seems very, very significant to you. And uh, the year, um, I
1: think it came out in 1990, 1991, um, or it may actually have been, I'm sorry, it was the year 2000. Uh, Dark Night, Early Dawn. So he's making reference immediately to the aspect of the dark night which is this sense of spiritual degradation and and utter um inner tragedy really it is something that that a person carries within a a sense of meaninglessness a sense of of desperation to live a more fulfilling life Um, and that early dawn is the awakening that follows the dark night and in jungian psychology you have this process repeating itself again and again that very often first a person must go through this dark night in order to then emerge um in a a state of of greatly expanded uh awareness accompanied by a a sense of of deeper meaning and and joy and and um inner satisfaction so beish is and this is supported now by a number of people groff gene houston um, Smithsman Smitsman um, are doing a course on what's called the future human. Um, I've been a part mm-hmm. of that, and this is one of a number of um avenues through which people are beginning to explore the definitive possibility that we as a species and as a planet are going through a collective dark night. Mm-hmm. And what is potentially on the other side is a transformation, a radical transformation of human consciousness, so that the these heightened states that we often not well not often, but we on if we are lucky. um, And I've touched a little bit upon this in, in what we discussed earlier, if we're lucky enough to have that kind of experience and I think Many, many people do at least once or twice in their lives. Um, Certainly people who are involved in deeper spiritual practice, this is probably a more common kind of experience emerging with an expanded um, oneness or consciousness. But in any case, the people I mentioned are developing theories and techniques for dealing with the present conflict and are looking into the future in relation to a a a greatly evolved humanity and what that might look like and how we might get there especially in the midst of this tremendous ecological crisis combined with uh, war and famine and all kinds of of disruptive um, happenings, which again, um, seem to suggest a a forthcoming dark night if we're not already in it. Hmm. Um, So that is how I would just briefly touch upon your question. Um, It's something that we go together, that we, we go through together, and is very much a collective thing. Anything that I experience on some level is available to all human beings. And so in a sense, we're all intimately interconnected um, in ways that we're not normally aware of. And we're certainly playing out these scenarios, these archetypal scenarios, the hero's journey or whatever it may be um, in the course of our lives. And it happens both individually and collectively. So um, I'm not sure if I've touched all of the points of your, your last question, but I do feel we are, at a tipping point, and that both Jung's work and um, the base, the essential principles of Buddhism, have a lot to teach us, and and a lot uh, in the way of uh, providing guidelines as we navigate our way through what will no doubt be a very very difficult time. Mm. uh in the future i think probably years from now when we are no longer on the planet we're going to be as a species experiencing and going through things that we can't even imagine right now and it may be extremes of both tragedy and decimation and also of tremendously expanded human capabilities Mm. um following again this this collective dark night so this is what Beish talks about Mm. um he following Groff's pioneering work in um, LSD psychotherapy, engaged in a 20 year process and ventured into uh, other dimensions, the kind of dimensions that um, are talked about in Tibetan Buddhism are touched mm-hmm. upon in Jungian psychology in the way of archetypal realms mm-hmm. um, and had contact with um, what we might simply call superior entities that guided him into different expanded aspects of his own spiritual potential far beyond human incarnation far beyond human identity, he was taking into um, divine dimensions that in essence are unfathomable and unless you experience them directly and even Beish will will tell you that he had to go back Sometimes two or three times in order to really begin to acclimate uh, his understanding and his perception so that he could make some sense of where he was and what this represented. Now this included the clear light of Dharmakaya, this all encompassing um, origin from which all things are understood in Buddhism to originate and to return to our essential nature uh, Mm -hmm. of this selfless uh, totality. Um, But also many other places and he encountered in other dimensions, other entities, he experienced his past lives, he experienced the lives of human beings in different genders and different races under innumerable circumstances it seems that he was given a crash course in both human incarnation and its multitude of forms from abject poverty to great wealth um, to the different complexities of, of gender but also taken to these places that again greatly um, expand beyond the human experience mm-hmm. so and what it tells us what the message is is that we are not only human and this is not the only dimension that exists we actually are divine in our nature we are multi-dimensional we are shape shifters we are in many places simultaneously and we are in contact even when we are unaware of it with entities that are guiding us or with processes, most certainly, that are moving through us. And this is much of what he talks about. And so he is essentially a kind of modern day um, guide to to what appears to be unfolding. His work is greatly respected by Groff, Richard Turnus, other prominent members of the transpersonal psychology community. Um, And he came out with a recent book, Diamonds from Heaven, Hmm. which expands upon this 20-year history that ended in, I I believe, the year 2000. And then 20 years later, he is continuing to amplify and to make sense of this profound, profound hero's journey. So... um,
0: yeah, I have yeah. I have a few comments there. I mean, first of all, you're are I'm just watching your hand motions as you describe where we are in time. Just where I mean, the the word that comes to mind is revolution. We call it the dark night of the soul, but I also I mean I also, you know, in constructing my new book, I'm the the twenty thousand foot views begins with astrology because I think astrology has a lot to bear in terms of understanding that there are cycles of time that this is not just there's not only one dark night of the soul i mean if i talk to you and you talk to me and we have enough you know we 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 have enough time together uh we're going to see that we've cycled through these dark nights many times but then if you take this long view and you talk about the collective the collective has also gone through cycles of expansion and contraction the collective i mean what the ancient Greeks called the Great Year, a twenty-six thousand-year period, which is you know delineated by the procession of the equinoxes, like the 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 hours of a clock, you know each each increment is some twenty twenty-one hundred years, and each of these represents a decline and an, and a transition, and therein lies a whole shadow confrontation, you know the Piscean Age that is. And Jung talks about this at least in several places, but definitely in his book, Ion. Mm-hmm. The end of the Piscean Age is the dawning of the age of materialism. Now you have 2100 years or 21 centuries dominated by the Axial Age revolution and the teachings of Buddha and Christ, etc. That brings a lot of incredible opportunity for the expansion of human consciousness. But by the tail end of the Piscean Age, you have in, sh- in a short order, 300 year period, the the, the downfall of, of, of civilization. Even though you have the age of reason and the uh, scientific revolution and all the great benefits it's given us, it also is the paradigm of materialism and reductionism, I think has added the core of our spiritual beingness our disconnection from source in whatever way you want to translate it and then of course we're now amidst some think that we're in transition in the in the transition some think we've already transitioned into the age of Aquarius and i've had several guests on the podcast very be very clear that this isn't some Hollywood or Broadway production version of the Age of Aquarius. In a way, the Age of Aquarius is the spirit of uh, the individual and individual rights, whatever that might be. The rise of people's populations against authority. So it may be the end of the Guru, but it, it is in another way the the way the the opening to the inner Guru of every single being, and that's why you see women's movements and gay rights and and all the, all the down the road and eventually. I had my last podcast guest uh, was talking about the, the rights of the planet, the rights of trees and plants, and also the rights of uh, extraterrestrial beings that we are constantly engaged with. So that, uh, that represents another opening, and then it will also have with it, these, these things are concomitant, with it comes a shadow. A particular, you know, it has its own signature. The Piscean Age upside and the Piscean Age shadow were unique to itself. And the the collective species, our collective species had to both had the opportunity to embrace the upside, but also whether we decided to collectively face the shadow or not was entirely a choice that we made or not. And it gets pushed on into another series of cycles. So here we are on the cusp of another revolution collectively brought on, I think, very clearly by the pandemic, but who knows where you want to put the delineate delineate marker or, or gateway. Nevertheless, I think there's, you know, I think there is a collective movement. You're talking about the transpersonal psychologists, but I think, listen, the, the, the shamans and the psycho psychedelic movement are also cross pollinating with this. Yes. Because if you look and talk to wisdom keepers of of the North American First Nations, they have a prophecy called the Seven Fires, which is you know their version of a story or a narrative that, that is about our time, this period of great decline and great awakening coming together. Mm-hmm. I mean, so th- we started at the top of our conversation with you in Thailand, having both a confinement and an awakening. And now we're zooming out and talking about our collective species going through, great strife and also with a great potential for some expansion into new dimensions. And when you talk about new dimensions, I don't see you hesitate. I personally don't hesitate. I think about Jung and his brush with psychosis, but I also think about the Tibetan culture that li- and also the Balinese Hindu culture that live amidst multi-dimension a world of spirits Mm -hmm. and whether you look at it simply as an archetypal journey inwards in which you fragment and meet archetypal angels or deities i think jung met philemon and had a encounter with as his psyche was fragmenting he also had a spirit guide yes and in the Tibetan culture, it, it's conceived of differently, but in a way, we're talking about the same thing.
1: Yes, I believe we are.
0: So, please, I mean, I mean, now we're into the heart of really why I invited you here, and maybe, maybe I can just, before I get so enthusiastic, okay, we're, we we are both sharing a kind of narrative of our time and place. We're 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 sense making that where there's challenge, there's also opportunity. Mm-hmm both on an individual level, but also on a collective level. I think this should be a reassuring message for people, because I think we can get very caught up in the degradation and the fragmentation and in the downfall and in the, in the demise. But it's also sort of necessary. Yes. You and I both see clients and they come because they want integration but you can't get to integration without disintegration actually we have to welcome and create a safe container and some understanding some nuance understanding about the fragmentation first the symptoms of you know addiction the symptoms of trauma the symptoms of depression the symptoms of anxiety are the souls beckoning us into a kind of awakening mm-hmm. and and the symptoms around us on a global level whether it be the ecological economic political structural Earthquaking is also kind of beckoning into a a revolution of in our thinking. And so I have not in a way come into contact with Bash and his work. I certainly know Tarnas and and and, and Groff. Um, but I think it's it's very synergistic what we're talking about. I think we're in agreement with the larger narrative. If I may just p- sort of keep that sort of picture right there and, and just give you some targeted uh questions to to query you mm-hmm. um i have been very interested in jung and his contact with the east i think there are a lot of scholars on jung but not all of them are capable about talking about jung's his own pilgrimage to to come into contact with the east whether it be buddhism or the Tao Te Ching or the um uh the 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 book by wilhelm what was it uh, secret of the uh, golden flower that's correct so we're talking about East Asian alchemy. I know he was interested in um, Gnosticism, but in a way he became he grew dissatisfied with Gnosticism and what he found in, in Chinese alchemy and in Tibetan Buddhism, I think, fully satisfied his Curie. Can you bring us into that milieu? Bring us into Jung, into that period of his life and his career, what he was looking for as an individual, what he discovered with the East. I'm I think this is a very rich curiosity of mine, and I'm sure a number of people listening will really, really enjoy that.
1: First of all, going back to Jung's formative years, his father was a country pastor, and Jung witnessed in him this tremendous absence of genuine faith, and it was cr- a crushing blow to his father. And there's a quote from Jung, that's um, often repeated, that, that children must live out the unlived lives of their parents and in many ways you don't get exactly that he found meaning of the deepest kind in his life perhaps in part in response to what he witnessed in his father his faith was not an outward faith in an outward uh, symbol and this is part of why he was attracted to the East. Uh, in mean, Christianity, we have a separate entity to which we uh, give our unyielding faith. Um, the, the religion itself does not teach us that Christ is within yeah. in the sense of um, our being Christ-like or our possessing Christ consciousness. The exoteric aspect of the religion, exactly. the traditional aspect that we're taught is that christ is essentially a separate entity and that we are to follow almost in blind faith um, the teachings that are expressed through the bible and other other uh, resources what and, and jung encountered this firsthand through his father and through his own religious upbringing at the same time he remained a christian his entire life he felt that culturally he was european and grounded in a kind of of christian foundation but what he sought to do was to find that god within and that's what you have in the east in the east the emphasis is on your inner divinity that each of us is part of in hinduism the godhead or in buddhism this um Clear light of Dharmakaya, this this expansive totality, um, this this. Buddha nature, yeah, and our our primal nature, um, and that was a, a defining characteristic for him. And this is what you have in in the Eastern uh, traditions, uh, for the most part, is that the the divinity lies within. We are already divine. We are inherently uh, blessed with the sense of God or whatever you want to call it Um, and that in the eastern traditions the emphasis again is on awakening to that which exists within already and this is quite different than the western approach and of course in the west we have developed materialism which is an outward form of worship in its own right. So in a sense, it follows that same basic framework. Um, Whereas in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, the the focus was not on scientific materialism, but on a kind of science of the mind, of developing techniques that would allow you to strip away the mask of human incarnation and to um, touch something, deep inside, um, deep within you, that is inherently your nature. You already are this expansive primal origin or, or, or consciousness. And we need to um, stop identifying with separate a separate sense of self, which is, of course, very Western, the whole uh, notion of individuality, And to completely abandon any of these attachments to the self-image, to the persona, to who we are in a social context, all of this is a great distraction. All of this takes us away from the ability to be free to experience something um, much more profound, much deeper, and much more enriching. There is an inherent joy, an inherent divinity that is always there waiting to be discovered that's our true self our true nature Um, and again this is in very simplified form the contrasting elements that ultimately or perhaps initially led Jung to the east he used to um, write uh, about Buddha as being a more complete representation of of uh, the spiritual path, because the Buddha stressed this this inner journey, Mm. whereas Christianity was uh, uh, the focus on an outward form, uh, Mm. being the the Christ figure. Um, But ultimately both are a, a representation of what we would call a God image. So whether it's an outward form or it's understood as, as an inner representation, they both have some value. They both are understood as archetypal representations of, of our deeper nature. And this is what I try to do in my work is combine um, the esoteric aspects of East and West, which are these um, traditions that were, did not become necessarily traditional traditional Catholicism, traditional uh, Protestantism, but rather were um, often repressed aspects um, of the church. And we have this throughout early church history and then later um, in different forms. Um, The alchemists in the middle ages who gave Jung such inspiration and served as a bridge from the ancient world to the modern we um, were involved in precisely this kind of, of inner transformation. It was initially expressed through a sort of chemical process, the transmutation of um, hmm. solids into gold. But ultimately, he understood this, and ultimately, he came to um, identify with the work of some very profound alchemists who were focused on inner transformation on turning ordinary experience, including one's greatest challenges and greatest hardships into um, a process of spiritual development and unfolding and, and awakening. This is really the hero's journey. This is the um, alchemical transformation um, that I write about in the work that you quoted earlier um, or referenced earlier. and. Um, so again, this is such a broad subject, and I, I can go. Yeah, into I'm the filled. Correction. I'm filled
0: with questions. On, let me let me help you then. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Jung's notion of process of individuation did it occur before al- his 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 meeting of alchemy and and the East, or did it occur or get nuanced afterwards?
1: I think it was present. Um... It's hard to say because he doesn't, in his um, wonderful uh, biography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which we abbreviate as MDR in the psychoanalytic community, one of the greatest, I think the greatest book I've ever read. It's so rich in so many different areas. He doesn't designate any particular time as the beginning of his sense of the process of what he would later call individuation in the most basic sense, it just means spiritual development, psychological and spiritual development. Um, But I definitely think his encounter with The Secret of the Golden Flower, the Taoist text, alchemical text, was instrumental um, in what it suggested in the way of a kind of of inner transformation or alchemical transformation, psychologically and spiritually. This was, the beginning of his exploration of uh, the Eastern traditions that would eventually lead him to Tibetan Tantra. And the connection with Tibetan, Tibetan Tantra is really the use of God images and sacred symbols as dynamic agents of inner transformation. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, you have deity worship and a number of different practices by which the practitioner or the, um novice monk um, will meditate upon these images of divinity as a way of of going beyond the contraction of his usual egoic self and expanding into something greater in Jung's work most commonly um, active imagination is the vehicle and you take a dream image and you go through the process of active imagination and um, I don't know if you would like me to share with you my one of my own experiences, but it can have.
0: Uh, yeah, let's define active imagination, and let's let's do a little let's do a little uh, detail work around what it actually involves.
1: So, active imagination is is basically um, using a um, a powerful. Image or figure, typically derived from a dream, but also it could be something that you see in a photograph, something that is utterly resonant to you. And basically, the practice begins with. Well, I'm I'm going to sh- I'm going to share my experience, and as I go, I will reveal the basic uh, formulation. Um, I had a dream once uh, while I was at Pacifica Graduate Institute studying counseling psychology, with a Jungian emphasis um, and part of what we were studying was this very element and I had a dream in which um, I understood my future career as being prominent and um, I was going to be this um, uh, very influential exponent of Jung's work. And there was this sense of pride and and um, social reputation uh, or professional reputation that was initially connected to that part of the dream. Then a curtain appears and I slide the curtain open and I walk onto a football field and there's a ball there waiting to be kicked in a goalpost. And if the ball goes through the goalpost, then the earlier association of the dream will come true. And if not, then perhaps not and so i stepped up kicked the ball it hit the body the, the lower rail of the goal post football goalpost, and bounced down <laughs> and it was it, it, it was utterly stunning to me uh what am i dreaming and, and why is this important and i knew that it that it, it had a special meaning there are mm-hmm. this is what you called a big dream There are big Mm. dreams and small dreams. Big dreams leave a tremendous impression on you. And when you have a big dream, to be able to amplify that dream and understand its deeper meaning is essential to the individuation process, to understanding who you are, what journey you are on, and how to move beyond limitations and expand into a, a greater sense of consciousness. So active imagination, then, which I was learning at the time is something that I did with myself, it's typically done with a counselor, it can be done alone. Um, What I did was and what you do is you become completely centered and completely quiet and you focus on the main image from the dream. And the dream was the, the main image was clearly the goalpost. And I began with that image in mind. And the dream just then unfolded. You're you're to allow your psyche to, of its own accord, just flow into a a dream scenario. Let the, 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 the images that follow unfold of their own accord. And I did that. And I found myself back on a football field and I was the quarterback. And I would go back to, the, uh, to pass and attempt to throw the ball to a receiver who would then score the touchdown. And that was the goal. And each mm. time I did that, I failed. Mm. Finally, I kept the ball and ran through the defense and landed just across the goal line when i landed on the ground the football turned into a glowing blue diamond Hmm. and that blue diamond spoke to me from from a place that i know instinctively to be my true self but from which i am usually disconnected Hmm. and what it said to me is the goal in life is not success in the outer world the goal in life is to awaken to your true nature in the inner world and it was communicated telepathically Hmm. and it was accompanied by this blue diamond which is an archetypal symbol of purity and wisdom that also exists in the tibetan tradition Hmm. so um i'm have included this experience in a few of my writings because it was so profound and so unbelievable. I never could have imagined this the contact with this, with what Jung would describe as the self. I am the ego. I am the persona. And yet through the archetypal process, through following the goalpost as the main image and playing this process out, I was able to to um, connect with my my higher self, which is essentially his theory of the transcendent function, which is to use um, these kinds of practices, such as active imagination, to merge with your your greater self, a a coming together of the ego and the self, uh, the self as the totality of the psyche. Mm I can't, it's a true story and I can't really give it justice telling it with words because it was um, beyond words and again the communication was purely telepathic, but it was more real than anything I've ever experienced in my life. And the key element here is that I was trying to pass the ball to someone else, which really means that I was looking for that achievement to occur outside of myself. But by keeping the football and maneuvering through the defense and ultimately achieving uh, the goal myself, this is the inner journey, as opposed to following an outward authority. Um, And this is the amplification that accompanies active imagination. To amplify is to understand the deeper aspects of a particular scenario, especially in a universal context, because we see a a repetition of these archetypes uh, and these universal scenarios across cultures and throughout the history of the species. And this is also one of Jung's great contributions is the understanding that this is a universal process that exists in all human beings and is something that um, has manifested in various forms in all cultures and in all times. The world mountain, um, the tree of life, Mm -hmm. these are archetypal symbols um, manifested through natural forms. Then you have inanimate objects such as the diamond, which represents um, the totality and purity and and, um, true uh spirituality they have power they they are resonant they carry what jung described as the numinous the sacred and when you're able to engage these symbols or these figures including personified figures like buddha and christ in a way that actually uh merges the little self with the totality our 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 source our origin then you have this experience of the sacred and this is what jung felt was absolutely key to the process of individuation when you can feel that within yourself this changes you as a human being and redirects your focus toward the inner world
0: yeah that was a beautiful beautiful segment there really i think your use of your personal experience and the potency of those images i mean the sense of you Know kicking and uh, coming up short and failing, I think we can all resonate with. But there's something, there's something, there's some very secret teaching there about the stick to of the imagery. And it's a little misleading, maybe, to call it active imagination because the way I understood you describing it was it's really letting the unconscious work itself through. In other words, uh allow the image to be there but it's not it's not like you're creating anything you're just staying with it as the unconscious works through the images again and again and again until it has a successful completion or resolution did i understand that correctly
1: well the 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 active inactive imagination is the willingness of the um, right. individual to engage in the process but ultimately you Give over the process to yes, I
0: was gonna use the word turnover. Yeah. It's it's yeah. the willingness, you're actively willingly turning yourself over to the unconscious. That's right and letting the unconscious lead you through something rather than resisting against it or fabricating or actively constructing something in a way maybe like a daydream is a construction. The active imagination is is sort of turning oneself over. Like what is the it's almost like the wisdom is latent it's already there.
1: That's right. Absolutely.
0: And I and think again, you know, the, Jung the, the, was Jung, I think, in contrast to Freud, correct me if I'm wrong, but their, their views of the unconscious were quite different. I mean, I'm not sure who it was that thought maybe you could, you know, the, the unconscious was something deplorable and that trips us up. Whereas I, I, if, I, if I remember my reading on Jung correctly, Jung thought it as a necessary ally. That the that the sort of and, I, and the image that I think I remember was that whereas consciousness is like the sail, the the unconscious is like the 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 rudder or the the sort of counterbalance to a ship, and that there is no there is no period where there is not there's going to be an overcoming of the unconscious. The unconscious the unconscious doesn't get illuminated in some you know apocalypse and is and then is forevermore obliterated it it has its function forevermore am, am i understanding that correctly
1: absolutely because the unconscious is the archetype of the self it is the totality it is our origin we're not the main event and this is something that jung emphasized again and again as incarnated uh, entities we take on a persona an image and we're we're confined to a sense of separateness in the world there's a there's a separation between you and me as separate different people between me and the environment i'm not that tree that i'm looking at and the idea in both buddhism and also ultimately in Jungian psychology is unus mundus which translates as one unitary world we are ultimately completely interconnected and all things arise in Buddhism from the universal mind or in Jungian psychology from the self, the totality, the psychic totality. In both traditions, it is mind, not matter, that is the source of everything. Matter is an expression of mind and mind is the source, or you could say in psychological terms, the psyche is the source, the totality, And so our manifestation as human beings is is a greatly limited form. And that's the whole idea of of a spiritual practice is returning to origin or source, which requires us, again, to remove the planetary mask known as persona or separate Mm. self and through practices like active imagination to merge with the totality, the origin of who we are, and it's through that kind of numinous or sacred experience that we feel a genuine sense of of meaning, of being connected to something much bigger than ourselves, that we are already, but in our normal waking consciousness, we are typically divided from. Hmm. And so this is really, you know, I think what's happening collectively also, I think for so many for hundreds of thousands of years, we have in one form or another um, existed as separate entities. Now we've gone through some very fascinating periods in which there was a strong emphasis on this merging with the source through, through different forms, whether it's, uh, you know, ancient Greece and its um, rites and rituals of rebirth or the Gnostics or, um, the alchemists all of this was occurring in the last 2500 years but going way back, I believe it was your last week's guest, who was talking about the standing stones, and um, some of these other remarkable um, uh, creations that date back uh, 5 to 8,000 years and I have experienced some of this in Scotland, and what he was talking about really resonated with me. In in psychology, the stone is one of the primary symbols of the self, of the totality. And it's a physical earthly manifestation which connects us to the earth because the earth is not separate. It comes from the same origin. And and as human beings, I think the great challenge in our time is to understand that that all sentient beings and even non-sentient beings like stones Arise from the same place and return to the same place. And that we must learn to live in harmony and also learn to expand our consciousness to include what otherwise appears to us as separate. Yes. And yes. I, I think this is a radical transformation in human consciousness.
0: Yeah. The ability so, to actually I'm...
1: sense, yeah, you know, the the, the oneness. That we all share, as opposed to being separate entities.
0: Yeah, that last little bit is—it seems now, three, four, maybe four or five guests are all—all all in their own ways, from their own disciplines, are saying the same thing. It seems very much like the direction that we're going. The work of the gentleman that you were talking about, Chris Baish, uh, whether it be Freddie Silva, who was the guest that I had recently, uh, and his—you um, know—his committed life to ancient. Uh, Ancient histories and ancient civilizations. Uh, I also had on um, uh, a, a wisdom keeper in the Druid and alchemical traditions. Uh, his name is escaping me for for some reason, but all essentially saying the same. Uh, John Michael Greer, a wonderful speaker, so 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 thorough in his assessment of the universality of esoteric traditions. All all in a way, uh, pointing to the same thing of having a personal and direct encounter, uh, a direct experience, what he called direct participation Mm -hmm. with the field. And that field, if you were looking at it in concentric circles, it's like it's breaking down and ever expanding. So some of the guests now that are coming on are saying just this, that the, the end of patriarchy in a way is the end of like the shedding of the persona. But what that means is that we're now touching other dimensions. We're now in being more inclusive of other realities and the presence of sentience in the environment. For example, my last guest and recording hasn't been released yet. Um, you know, Eric Anderson, Eric Jampa Anderson, who's a Tibetan uh, medical doctor and astrologer, his forthcoming book is on the fact that it's it's called Unseen Beings. And he's basically talking about the expansion of consciousness to be so inclusive that even plants, animals are treated as self. Yes. And and I think so. It's just it, it just feels to me that we if we are to return now to the grand narrative that we set up midway through the conversation, of the dark night, the collective dark night of the soul and the potential that is concomitant within it of reaching some you know, new new vision, a new vision of ourselves individually, but also a new collective vision of who we are. Like if we start to look on the one side of the coin, we see great racism and great economic div- divisiveness and polarization and, and just the mud and mire of the shadow collectively, structural, structural in, inequities, and you name it. But what is coming through, what is coming through from the self, if I can use Jung's word, is the possibility of experiencing a greater vista as the self.
1: Absolutely. And that is, I believe, our destiny. I there, are direct correlations to the work of Aurobindo, for example, who is of course the the great Indian philosopher and mystic who talked about merging the dimensions, bringing um, higher consciousness to a planetary level. So that it's not something that we experience on rare occasion, such as my dream example, or somebody as with Bosch who is venturing into these dimensions um but in a sort of controlled and 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 only occasional format but rather something that becomes a living part of who we are as manifestations of spirit in physical form um, whether or not this was intended from the outset that this is some mission of sorts that is playing itself out over hundreds of thousands of years ultimately ultimately leading to a merging of uh physical existence with the uh divine source from which it originates Hmm. or whether this is something that has occurred um just in the process of earthly manifestation it's difficult to know but there is i think a growing consensus among People like Gene Houston and Annalise Smitsman, certainly it's in the work of Aurobindo and others, and it's revealed in Basia's work uh, in a definitive sense, that this is part of a broader plan that was worked out on another level and that all of us are, are a part of. We choose to come here. When we choose, I mean we're in a different dimension, in a different form. Mm -hmm. And we work out our lives and our scenarios ahead of time. We come here to learn, to love, to to, um, struggle through um, these archetypal and mythic processes that are so beautifully elucidated by Jung and Campbell, for example. This is all part of a developmental process that is immense in scope and would involve In Beisha's understanding and in Tibetan Buddhism, hundreds, if not thousands of individual incarnations and those incarnations are only a small part of a broader. um, Spiritual reality or entity that is actually. Guiding or promoting or 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 manifesting. uh, Earthly incarnations um, of the sort that that we're presently experiencing so. This is huge territory (laughs) and and the implications are immense. And um, again, to echo your point and the point that is uh, a central part of Basha's work early, I'm sorry, um, Dark Night, Early Dawn, for whatever reason, our developmental process, both personally and collectively involves struggle as part of the, releasing of this sense of separateness, and that we must go through a kind of dark night, both personally and collectively, in order to expand into a greater consciousness. So what's happening in the world may well be part of something that is not only leading us to a better place, but was actually planned in advance as part of the way that things work on this dimension. And so there's an old saying, you have to go through hell to get to heaven. And this would seem to apply in this context, but the great challenge is going to be, I think, and Beish emphasizes this in his work, we're gonna need to have a different understanding of tragedy and of horror. And we're going to need to, um, in some way, come to terms with it as a natural part of the process. Not that we encourage it, but yeah. that we find a way to deal with it in a more accepting and holistic manner yeah. so that it isn't seen as separate and as something that we push away, but rather something that we work with as part of facilitating this this transformation.
0: Yeah, wonderfully put. And I, 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 I'm, I'm in agreement. I feel, I mean, at least the, the structure of my book takes people on a journey through Jung and Joseph Campbell precisely to empower them so that they don't feel at odds with their predicament that actually this is necessary. And in a way, there's no other way. There's no other way uh, but through, through mm-hmm. the encounter with the shadow, through the all the resistances and all the demonic forces, all the confrontation, the revelation of our dark past. I mean, on a collective level in Canada and North America where they dig up mass graves of children and, and the underbelly of racism that is now so apparent and the, the misogynistic impulse and the economic polarization and all these grotesque underbelly of our collective psyche and our collective culture that we would all too well and wish to wish them away.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Uh, and and same with trauma responses when you're working with just a simple, with one individual, one client, and they want they wanna be done with their addiction, they wanna be done with their dissociation, they wanna be done with their depression. It's like in a way, you have to come undone and you have to confront the madness as you did in Thailand for two years in order to actually find the inner resources that, that they're not, they're not given, they're earned.
1: Mm -hmm. Good point.
0: And the strength that we want, and I think, I think my comment on our culture, especially young people is that they, they, they're quite entitled Mm. and they, they want comfort. And we want to deliver that comfort. I mean, we want it in a pill, we want it in a fast acting, you know, tincture, we want it in a, a, uh, you know, a hack, a biohack, a quick diet, uh, an eight-week course. If you look at the motivation underlying it, it's like, I want to get to heaven without going through any hell.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And our culture's gotten really fat on good at that. Uh, But I think esoteric traditions world over, they understood I think Jung understood it and articulated it in a way that we in the West can understand it in an archetypal language. But I think shamanism, I think psychedelics. I think about Tibetan Buddhism. I think about all these cultures. I mean, even my visitation to Bali, I mean, the energy in Bali is very palpable, but it's not all angelic energy. And the, and the demons have to be appeased. And if you're not careful, they're gonna bite you in the ass and that biting you in the ass is actually really necessary because you're not seeing something totally. There's some aspect of your psyche that hasn't fully integrated. And so it's, it's when it's not integrated that it hikes up the volume to give you a good kick in the ass. And that's what the world is going through right now. We have dissociated ourselves so fully from the environment and so fully from each other and crawled up into our ivory towers. That now there's a nasty backlash, and it and we have a choice: bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there, build an ivory tower in New Zealand to to to, to escape the pandemic, or actually deal deal with the, the shadow reasonably. And I, I think there's you know we're I I think that one of the things that I like in our discussion. Is that it leaves many roots into the same understanding? I see the movement, the psychedelic movement, capturing the imagination of a whole new set of people that are going to be able to venture into those new domains and reclaim the sense of totality that you experienced in the Himalayas at 30, mm-hmm. that, one, that drop in the ocean. And they're going to see the mountain as themselves and they're going to see the trees as themselves and but they're not going to do it from an intellectual place they're going to do it from a thoroughly engaged visceral intuitive place and it's only then when it's intuitive that you see the mountains and the rivers and everybody else as yourself that you're finally fucking going to respect them because the conceptual level of understanding is not going to cut it but there's not everybody's going to take an ayahuasca journey and so for example, in my own practice, you can go on a shamanic journey. You can go on a pilgrimage, as you did, and as and I and as I did, in, at twenty, and it amounts to the same thing if done well. And you can also go into psychotherapy, and you can. There all these avenues provide a way for the predisposition of the practitioner to meet the mystical the mystical realm that Jung was so seeking when he confronted the East. And and I think that's useful for everybody because in a way we're all, co- collectively, we're all facing the same dark night. Um, but our way of ascending to the light or of ascending to awareness, the new dawn of awareness, is by var- various means. There are so many ways to get there now. Mm-hmm. And, and that's refreshing uh, because I think everybody's inclined little bit differently to it um maybe i could segue to ask for any of your um, parting wisdom or if there's a message that you want to broadcast uh you know having now gone through your two-year stint having arrived with a wonderful course which i'm uh, planning on taking with you combining Jung and tibetan buddhism having you know uh confronted some of the elements that you had disassociated from or distanced yourself some feeling more uh, integrated yourself personally, but also with the fact that we are finding ourselves at this epic period in history where there's agreement all around about the expansion of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Is there anything further that you want to sort of conclude on, give our uh, listeners something to mull over? Maybe you don't answer it for them, but maybe you offer some further question, further practice, anything at all.
1: Very good question. And uh, there are so many things that we could um, elaborate upon. But in basic terms, I think the knowledge that we are so much more than this earthly incarnation is an understanding that is essential, I think, in some way, um, even if it's deeply buried, there is a deep intuition, what Jung called a religious instinct in human beings in which they understand at a deep intuitive level that they are in essence uh, a spiritual entity and that they derive from this remarkable unfathomable um, psychic source that is in its essence divine and so apparently we come to this planet as manifestations, finite manifestations of an infinite or eternal entity. Jung used to emphasize, and he came to this at a very young age, the difference between his number one and number two personalities. The number one personality was the social egoic self, the ordinary person who lives in this world. And the number two personality was this eternal self, a self that was greatly expanded and eternal. It wasn't confined to time. The dimension from which we derive is timeless. Here, we live in time. We are finite entities, but our nature is infinite. And this is what you experience in mystical experience. You experience a union and that union is an eternal, Uh, or a sense of the eternal, a sense of of a a unified uh, consciousness that is beyond time and is in its very nature divine. And if people can tap into that number two personality, if they can give that some room, some space, I begin to allow it to speak to them through dreams, through uh, spontaneous engagements with the the visuals they may come across in their everyday lives. This is a means of beginning to to reconnect on a more conscious level with that origin, that divinity. And again, it often happens through sacred symbols and archetypal forms, which is why Jungian uh, and Buddhist psychotherapy, which we both perform, can be so helpful in that regard because people are um, given an opportunity to remove the mask and to explore these these deeper possibilities so um keep the faith in that sense there really is something profound and utterly beautiful to discover and we have to be willing to go through sometimes a a very difficult journey involving um, the unmasking of our usual sense of self in order to to merge with that greater totality, because it's not a human incarnation full stop. It's so much more than that. We are the drop within the ocean and the ocean is our true nature, not the drop. But right now as a finite entity incarnated on this planet, we appear as a, a separate drop. (laughs) And the reality is we're actually the ocean. And that is mystical experience in a nutshell. Um, Communing in a a unitary state with our divine origin. And it's everyone's birthright. And that would be my my closing thought.
0: Judson, thank you so much for your time, your contribution to the field sharing so much with you i look forward to future conversations of synergy maybe some travels you know in play once you get back on the road uh i'm going to look forward to corresponding with you through your course while i relocate to bali but i want to thank you for being so generous with your time and your thinking over these years in the wisdom keeper podcast so all my best wishes to you and thank you so much and look forward to our next opportunity to sit down and, and, and recover uh, once again, all the, uh, all, the, all the great truths that are within us. So thank you so much.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Miles. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Keeper Podcast. If you've enjoyed this presentation of Sacred Knowledge, kindly like, subscribe, review and share our podcast and video series on YouTube with your network so that more people can benefit from these teachings and together we can create a brighter future. If you're interested in my online courses, our community membership, and pilgrimages I lead, consider visiting the Contemplative Studies program at gradualpath.com. Until we gather again, all best wishes.